Our often simplistic presentations of biblical figures like Gideon and Samson can obscure the fact that the book in which they feature, Judges, is a grim exploration of Israel's inability to remain faithful to their covenant with God and the resulting consequences for the nation. By contrast, the book which immediately follows Judges, Ruth, is brimming with displays of covenant faithfulness. My name is Kenny Innes, and in this episode of Theodisc, I'll be talking with Alistair Wallace about how these two books ought to be read together, and how women and the treatment of women are vital to the theological trajectory of them both. Alistair teaches Introduction to Old Testament on WTC's CERT-HE and BA programs. He has a degree in Public Policy and Management from the University of Ulster, one in Divinity from Union Theological College, and also has a Master's in Theology and PhD from Queen's University Belfast. He regularly works with missions organisations and access-restricted nations, training pastors and teaching the Old Testament. He's also a pastor with Christian Fellowship Church in Northern Ireland and currently co-leads our Antrim site with his wife who happens to be named Ruth. Please help us reach as many people as possible by subscribing and sharing Theodisc with your friends. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, I'm delighted to have on Theodisc today, Alistair Wallace. Alistair, who teaches um, Old Testament with us at WTC. Welcome, Alistair. It's good to have you. Uh, good to be along with you, Kelly. Yeah. So um, when I asked Alistair if he'd like to come on, he pretty immediately sprung to Judges and Ruth. And so that's what we're going to explore a little bit later, some of the connection points between the Book of Judges and the Book of Ruth. But before we do that, Alistair has to run the gauntlet of three oh. questions. <laughs> He's already sweating. Yeah. Three questions, Alistair, just so we can get to know you a little bit yeah. better. Um, and so these are about, this is things that you return to constants in your life. Um, and so the three categories that we'd like you to think about, the first is a book. You can't, by the way, um, choose a biblical text. Okay. <laughs> right, that's cheating. Cheating. Because um, you just come up with Judges and or Ruth, which would be <laughs> double cheating in this podcast. A meal and a place. So first of all, what's a, a book that you always return to? Well, I suppose one that I've read a few times uh, is a, it's a little book by R.T. Kendall, actually, called uh, God Meant It For Good, uh, sort of based around the story of Joseph. And uh, I suppose I read it over 20 years ago at a particularly difficult time in my life and just how it really spoke to me at the time and challenged me in various sort of attitudes and stuff that was going on with me at the time. So yeah. it's it's got a wee special place uh, for me and I've read it a few times, recommended it a few times to different people in different situations. So that's one, yeah, God meant it for good. Brilliant. And um, a meal or a kind of food? Oh, well, uh, so I would travel to Asia quite a bit and do some work out there with different churches and uh, especially in Thailand. So uh, red Thai curry with duck and pineapple would be my sort of uh, one of my favorite all time meals. Something I even try to cook myself at home, but it's it's uh, when I go there, it's one I always go for. <laughs> it's not quite as good back home as it is in no, Thailand. No, it's never as good, no, but it's worth the effort. Though. <laughs> and what about a place that you return oh, to? Oh, place. Well, uh, I suppose, I, well, I'm a country Antrim boy, so I have to talk about the glens of Antrum and the Causeway Coast, but uh, in, in the middle of all that, there is a, is a lovely wee, uh, play, wee village called Glenarm, which has a, mm. a beautiful forest walk, and that, that's somewhere where probably my wife and I would be quite regularly, probably even once a month, just for, wow. uh, it, well, it's a great, great place to walk and talk, shall we say. Brilliant. 
Oh, great. Thanks, Alistair. Yep. Now we know you, so you're allowed <laughs> to go further on the podcast. Go further. <laughs> in the kind of short time that we have, we're going to look a little bit at Judges and Ruth. Now, you teach Old Testament at WTC, yeah. but what is it about, let's say, Judges that you return to because it's an odd book. Yeah, it's it, it it's got many facets to it. So it well, it, it, I think it's got the whole gambit of human behaviour in there. Apart from everything else, you know, we've got the usual sort of controversial ones, you know, money, sex, and power, all you know, having their play with different characters. But I, I suppose even last year, teaching the book of Judges uh, primarily, you, even some of the questions the students realised, I, I don't know this quite as well as I thought it did, because there's a few aspects I'm still wrestling with within the text and. Uh, uh, so that's part of my motivation for it. But I think it's one of the ones when you talk to people, they find it very, very difficult. You know, it's like, how does God allow all this stuff to go on? And uh, the people of God, you know, some of the, the great heroes of the faith uh, and some of their behaviours, which is quite shocking at times. Uh, so how, how do you marry those two things up? Uh, I, th- I think probably, uh, I know you had uh, Nick on there recently in one of your podcasts talking about, you know, how uh, people have the gifts of the Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, but yet their behavior sometimes doesn't match up with this. Uh, and we find this within the book of Judges, these great men and women of God, and whose, some of them, their character doesn't match up the gifting and calling that God has given them. Uh, and we see the disastrous consequences of that. I mean, it is interesting that there are elements of Judges that we are very familiar with. Yes. Because people like Gideon and Samson are taught, you know, that's your Sunday school staples yeah. right there. And yet, when you actually go and read the text as it is, yes. you suddenly find that what we think we know is quite different to what's presented in the text well, itself. Ex- exactly. You mentioned Gideon there. You know, the, the whole story is very famous. So, but it, when you get into it, you know, he is later called Jerubel, you know, the one who pulls down Baal. But mm-hmm. yet, when he takes some money, he what does he do? But he makes an idol for himself out of an effort. You know, so it's this sort of, he's doing these great things for God, uh, but yet at the same time, the, the influences of idolatry and uh, his own sort of power and esteem comes into all that as well. Yeah, yeah. So let's zoom out for a second yeah. and just maybe think about what what would you see then as the central themes running through Judges? Well, I think, I mean, I think traditionally you know, sort of the analysis of it in three parts, you have that sort of general introduction and then we have the, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, six major sin cycles and then we have this uh, epilogue at the end of uh, of the two Levites and how they're dealing with. So you, you've got all that, that in terms of the detail but I think most of it, what I'm thinking of is it, it's, uh, it takes us back to the covenant, you know, and how Israel has not lived up to the covenant and you, you reach this high point uh, just before it in Joshua where Joshua's renewing the covenant and you, I suppose uh, if you're familiar, you know, we're familiar with the sort of suzerain vassal treaty of the covenant you know, the, where, God, where Yahweh as a suzerain you know he's a protector and the provider uh, he's provided for Israel up to now uh, and all that Israel have to do their part of the bargain is you know 
just, you know, you're only allowed one suzerain, you're only allowed one lord. Uh, keep to the covenant, no other gods before me. Uh, and yet this runs through the whole of Judges, that the, the people are seemingly, rather than pushing out the people with their idols, they have become canonized themselves and absorbed or absorbed the uh, the idolatry of the nation that they've uh, been given by God. So it, I, I think what, the, the big thing that they all the, uh, the people are, all throughout the text, they're being tested all the time on, uh, is Yahweh truly king? Mm. And this big gap in their behavior that they, they you know, by, by abandoning the covenant and not keeping their side of the bargain, yet all the way through it, we're, we're, well, especially at the start, we're told God has been faithful to his covenant, has never ceased in his faithfulness to it. But yet, uh, even the writer, and it's, it's in the early part of chapter two, where he sets us up and he basically tells us what's going to happen in the rest of the book. You know, right. we're, we're going to deteriorate here. You're going to see bad stuff. You, we, the people have ignored God, have ignored the covenant. And it's just, we enter this sort of downward spiral of, of the six sort of uh, sin cycles from that. But yeah. I, say, I, I take a lot of it back to the covenant or lack of covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. Yeah, because even at the beginning there, there is this statement that a generation had arisen who did not mm. know the Lord. Yeah. So there, there's some sense in which that generation that came out, Joshua's generation, didn't pass on this knowledge of God and the covenant. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's part of the, I mean, if you even go right back to Moses uh, and the original Sinai covenant, I mean, part of it, and, and again, it's an element of the uh, suzerain vassal treaties, that the, the covenant is meant to be repeated to the people. It's something you you, you always sort of bring to remembrance, etc. And yeah. so that's a major failing that's highlighted straight away in the book of Judges. You know, even, you know, this short passage of time from Joshua, and we've now moved into a period of time where, the, you know, Whilst the covenant is there, we, we haven't sort of brought it to the attention of the people who are going to succeed us. And that's a, it's a major failing of them. And that's probably uh, it's a failing of, of our churches as well sometimes. Mm. As, you know, we, we fail to pass on the great covenant that we have in Christ. You know, yeah. we, 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 you know we're always to... If you think of Jesus's words, even when he's establishing that, you know, it's this doing remembrance of me. And so yeah. the, the remembrance of the covenant is so important. It's not just the teaching. It's the, the covenant itself becomes the, the centerpiece of it all. You know, it's I think we lose that even in our, our Christianity at times. We get tied up with many other things in the periphery and forget the, the, the centrality of just how much that covenant means to us. You know, it should be the, the basis of everything and the thing we always fall back towards and so in in judges you have the sense in that god seems to be raising up individuals yes with this intention of this will surely return the people back into covenant yeah. with him and we see the cycle as it repeats you know, because after each one of them when the judge dies well there's a certain period of peace usually 40 years or 80 years and then they lapse again so again that generational peace 40 years is generally sort of accepted as a a generation within the Old Testament. So, you know, it's like, again, the generation didn't pass it on to the next one. And and hence the cycle begins again and becomes even worse. And how successful, I mean, those, those judges, it's a bit of a, a mixed bag. I mean, you have Othniel at the beginning, yeah. who is seems to be kind of like this archetypal uh, judge. Everything yeah. kind of go, seems to go well with yep. him. It's a very short narrative. Very, very short narrative. And, yeah. you know, in the connection, obviously, with uh, Caleb there as yep. well through his daughter. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then we move into Deborah later on. 
Yeah. And again, and Deborah, she's a fascinating one as well, because the word for, for judges actually means leader, probably more so than the typical idea we have of judges, somebody sitting in a courtroom with a wig on, you know. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but we do see that in her, though. She sits under the tree, you know, named after her, the tree of Deborah. And she's almost Moses-esque, you know, I think, because yeah. she's one of the few people that sort of takes that role of, uh, you know, uh, actioning between the people making decisions that were sort of legal decisions but also prophesying mm. so you know uh, there's very few other people in the old testament would have i would say would have that sort of stature that deborah would have and so i think in terms of the whole idea of women in leadership here's a woman that's almost on the same stature as moses and carrying out the same functions of moses uh slipped in amongst all these other uh, men who tend to fail, which yeah. <laughs> she sort of stands in stark contrast to the guys that follow her in the text anyway. Yeah, we'll maybe cycle back to that idea yeah, because yeah. you do then after that get this kind of degradation where Gideon comes, which seems to begin well, but even within Gideon's story, you get these little hints as it goes uh-huh. along that um, he's he's not quite as, got quite a the strength of character that they often present yeah. that he does. Well, obviously, even even the the various fleeces and stuff sort of shows a, maybe a lack of faith. And yeah. it's I suppose it's quite surprising why he gets a mention later on. Uh, you know, in in the book of Hebrews, as one of the heroes. And is it a case maybe he gets mentioned as a uh, here's a man who's so weak, but yet you know, faith in Yahweh made him strong. Maybe that's the reason yeah. I can understand. And uh, I think it maybe mentioned well, how mentioned before. But the whole idea of even Bark gets a mention in Hebrews, whereas why why does Deborah not? There's yeah. a question, you know, why, why is she left out when she shows more faith in what God's going to do uh, than what He does? He has this great victory, which is fantastic. But then he names, you know, the people want him to make him king, and it's like, a, oh no, no, I, I couldn't possibly be king. But yet he names one of his sons, you know, my my father is king Abimelech, you know. So yeah. you got this sort of false humility almost coming through as well, which is quite funny, you know. Yeah. And, and then the disaster that happens with Abimelech himself, he, you know, you know, say there's the, the anointed and the self-appointed. Well, Abimelech seems to be, you know, appoints himself as king, you know. Yeah. And uh, the disaster that comes out of all that there and the bloodshed that comes out of it, it's, it's, uh, it's horrendous what he gets up to in the middle yeah. of this. So uh, it's always, like you said, that the pinnacle is right at the start of, uh, and I think it's probably written in that way. My understanding of the book of Judges, it's not in a chronological order as sure. such, but it is written such a way to show us the uh, the overall moral decline yeah. and how how bad it gets before Samuel comes on the scene later yeah. on. By the time you get to Samson... Um, uh-huh. There's another of our great oh, heroes yeah. of the faith, but Samson just it seems to be the that kind of inverse pinnacle of um, the move from Israel of devotion or relationship with Yahweh to complete self-interest. Samson oh, is just absolutely. all about himself. Yeah, it's all about him, and uh, even his acts of violence, you know, which I think some point out. Well, is that God uh, empowering him to do that, uh, you know, right. to, or or is it just him? He has a strength that God has given him, and he uses it to ill effect. And I think it's probably more the latter than the former. Mm. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think because uh, yeah, he just he he flies off the handle almost at times he doesn't get his way and he just kills people sometimes you have said this almost in a humorous way but it's quite if you're in that scene and you're the person 
at, at the end of what he's doing. It's horrendous what he's done. Even yeah. though we say, oh, well, it's only the Philistine. No, no, these are these are people created in the image of God, and you're just killing them out of spite, you know, out of a you know your bad temper. And yeah. so it, it's it's it in terms of his character, it's 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 awful what it's portraying. Yep. It's ex- almost exactly what you shouldn't be, you know, as a Christian leader, or sorry, as a you know, as a godly leader. This is not what we would expect. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you, so you've got this kind of narrative outline. Let's not forget Ehud, <laughs> who has that magnificent stab in the king while he's on the toilet. Yes. Just the, yes. the, that. I loved that story when I was about nine years old. <laughs> So you have this progression as this central narrative mm-hmm. that's running yeah. through. The judges who are supposed to restore Israel to yes. Yahweh end up actually, in some senses, moving them further away from yeah. Yahweh. But if you sit down and read the book, mm-hmm. you do get this clear sense of the importance and the impact of women throughout yeah. the narrative. And it's clearly there. And maybe we can talk a little about what that's yeah. about. Well, if you think of most of Scripture up to this point, uh, women don't seem to uh, play such a prominent role, but yet they, they pop up all over judges in various ways. And in ways which I think tend to show a positive side of women, even though they're being treated horrendously. Sometimes, you, I mean, for example, you get this little cameo uh, of Caleb's daughter, and right at the start, you think, oh, so why is that in the text? Because it it doesn't seem to add anything to the text, other than it highlights this very, I, I think, very sort of uh, independent, intelligent young woman who wants, you know, her own means. So uh, she it, she she comes on her horse, she rides yes. in, and argues for a greater uh-huh. piece of land than she's been yeah. given. It's yeah, and it's funny how even people interpreting the the, the text through the years have seen it because there's, there's some text will uh, she. She actually asks her husband to ask her father for the land, but but some of the the scriptures will interpret that he asked her to ask her father huh. that he's taken the initiative. But it, I think if you read on, but I think the you know the text that follows that she then asks her father for the springs as well. So it would it would seem a little inconsistent to take that sort of view. I, I think it's probably more consistent to take the view she asks her husband to ask her father for the land, and then when she meets her father, ask for further springs and. Say it's shown that here's a girl with independent thought and wants independent means, and I think it's almost a little touch of the Proverbs 31 there. You know, she she asked to buy a field and and to flourish it. So it's a woman. You know, she's got a famous father and she's going to have a famous husband, but she's she's not sitting in the shadows and she she wants her own piece of the action and and uh, she's blessed in the middle of it. What's that got to do with the rest of the judges? Other than it's been inserted there, I think, to show a woman in a in a good light and. uh, I suppose, and I know you've maybe looked in the past, you know, the, the whole idea of both the books fitting within the Deuteronomic history. And mm-hmm. I think I was, I was sitting yesterday, I would need to research this further, so don't, I wouldn't build my house on it. But I sort of wonder, uh, going back to Josiah's reforms, you know, when Hulda, the prophetess, is consulted. You know, yeah, about, Josiah finds the yeah finds the law. You know the copies. You know we've forgotten this, uh, and you know, and she draws them back to the covenant. It's this idea of going back to the covenant again, uh, and I sort of wonder in the writing of all. You know, when we get to our final sort of canonical form that we have now, how much 
did she have an influence on this, if, if anything at all? It's an, I just think it's an interesting question. I'd love to, I'll probably need to research that a wee bit further now, but it, it just sort of occurred to me, could this be the reason why there's so many sort of positive uh, influences of women within the text here? Yeah, uh, and even the the whole the 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 text you know, later on in round jail and how she kills Cesara is fascinating in itself. Again, showing a woman uh, again of independent thought and uh, prepared to take you know her own actions and be responsible for them because her husband has sort of uh, she's from the Canaanites and or Canaanites. And again, in chapter one, we get a this little wee bit about oh the Canaanites. Had pitched her tent with the the people of Judah, and then later her husband he pitches his tent, probably over about a hundred miles north of where they have originally arrived in Israel, mm-hmm. and he has made an alliance with the enemy king, and, and so the when when the whole uh, scene when Sisera comes to her tent, you know expect you know, cause her husband's made an unholy alliance with him and his king, uh, she invites him into the tent now. Some commentators have sort of suggested, oh, well, she sort of uh, just decided in a spur of moment, you know, uh, we might as well throw our pitch back in with Israel because, you know, Cesar is now on the losing side. I, I think there's more to it here. I, I think that she has been independent of her husband and, you know, thought, no, no, uh, she wants to pitch him with the God of Israel rather than the surrounding gods. And I, I think there's an element of that there. And there's almost a little parallel later on, I think, in Ruth. You know, if you think of the idea of Elimelech leaving the you know, the the uh the town of Bethlehem and pitching his tent basically mm. down with Moab, and and it takes a Moabite then to bring the family back to right. where they belong in Bethlehem, and so the, there's little parallels going on in those texts as well. But again, you you have two women making big choices regarding you know the God that they serve. Is it Yahweh or is it the gods of the the Canaanite region and uh, the surrounding nations? Yeah, and and. Also, alongside these kind of strong narratives of women, you also get these hints that become louder as the text progresses. So at the beginning, I think around about chapter three, you have this sense of the Israelites taking their daughters and giving them yeah. as wives. So there's this, the, the treating of women as kind of part of this bargaining yeah. structure with the other nations. And then you get even strong figures like the certain woman who throws the millstone that kills Abimelech. Yes. She, she remains <laughs> nameless, which yes, is interesting. Yeah. Um, and then as the text progresses, um, you find that there's more and more violence uh, perpetrated yeah. against women. Um, so what do you think narratively is, is being done there? If you, we think of the sort of recurring motif at the end, you know, that men were basically, you know, there was no king in Israel, men did as they liked. The, the more, uh, shall we say, that men spiral down in this behavior, the worse women get treated. And that sort of reaches its sort of high point or, or low point, should I say, with the Levites' concubine. Uh, you know, from about chapter 19 on. And that's, a, you know, probably the most diabolical story of the lot. If you think even in the book of Hosea, you know, where Hosea is prophesying just before the fall of the Northern Kingdom, and one of the things that he draws out is as if you've sunk to the depths of the men of Gabeah. That's the lowest point of our history to now, and you have repeated it, and this is why Samaria is about to fall. Some people have interpreted that passage almost as if the the poor, the poor Levite, you know, is the victim here, and his wife, you know, his concubine does this, and she gets through that. No, I I think you know he's the villain of the piece. Here, here's a man. He's not just an ordinary man. This is a guy who's a Levite, the uh, the the spiritual leadership of the country, and here's what he's done. 
and even taking a for a Levite to take a concubine, I think that's probably not, not uh, usually considered enough as well. You know, what, what's a Levite doing with a concubine? If you think back to the law of uh, the regulations, even around priests and the women they could marry or couldn't marry, and yet he's taken on a second class, what would be termed as a second class wife. You know, so he, he's getting all the benefits of marriage without the commitment of a covenant. And this is how she gets treated. Uh, and even again, there's a there's difficulties in around that passage of how some of the words are interpreted. Because at one point it says, well, if you read the NIV version, it says that she, uh, I think, uh, was unfaithful to him. Some uh, some translations are even less kind to her, saying she harlotted herself. But uh, there's difficulties around the the Hebrew language around that. And another interpretation is she was angry with him. Uh, and uh, if you think of the the next part of the text where he has to go and speak tenderly to her now if she had you know so i think there's a bit of a male bass with some right. of the translations going yeah. on there you know as a man we have to put our hands up to that one go yep that looks bad because uh, the flow of the text i think would suggest yes he's made her angry and that's why she left she's gone back uh, to her dad She's gone back to her dad, and uh, you know, I guess that shows. So, you know, for 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 all married men to when it, when it's speaking tenderly to your wife, it's usually because you've done something wrong, not the other yeah. way about. And uh, yeah. and if she had been unfaithful and a more serious note, she probably would have been stoned to death. You know, uh, you know, according to the law. So, I, I think it's more of a again, if we take that bass out of it and say, well, he's made her angry. He has to go and speak tenderly to her, and and he goes off and speak and it's it's interesting we're, we're comparing this into the book of ruth that's the same phrase that ruth refers to boaz you know you know she's grateful for him speaking tenderly to her yeah uh, that's a lovely expression where where boaz when he speaks tenderly to her actually goes out of his way to protect ruth in this occasion we have a levite initially speaking tenderly to her and then treat her in the most abominable way possible so there's a, there's a sort of a compare and a contrast going on between the two texts there as well. You've got this idea then of covenant faithfulness yep. in, in Judges being abandoned. And yep. as goes the nation in this mm -hmm. unfaithfulness, yeah, the, the mistreatment of women is is amplified. Yeah, then you turn the page mm -hmm. and you get the book of Ruth, which quite pointedly begins with in the time of in the, the judges. Time of the judges, yeah. It, well, again, I think as I think I've read in various, you know, there's a school of thought that thinks that well, Ruth was written, you know, post Ezra Nehemiah to counter some of the stuff that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were doing in terms of you know uh, kicking out the women who were, uh, you know from the surrounding nations where the where the the uh the people of israel had intermarried but i, I think it's much more the case of it's it's a counterbalance to what has gone on in judges as if judges are saying well if when men do their own thing and we spiral to the bottom of the barrel literally uh here's the counter piece to this this is how women actually should be treated and this is how god always intended it to be mm -hmm. and uh, i so i i think there's you know it, it's a, a very big uh, compare and contrast. This is the bad stuff that happens. Here, here's the the really good bit. When when men live in covenant with 
Yahweh and live out that covenant faithfulness towards women and, and, and women towards men as well. I was reading it uh, where Boaz speaks to Ruth and he says, you know, may God repay you for the, the way you've treated your mother-in-law. And we just say, oh yeah, well, you know, God will, it's almost like may God just bless you. But the, the word that's used in the Hebrew, it's, it, it's related to the word shalom. I was looking at even in Strong's, it's, it's almost trying to convey this idea of may you be in the covenant of peace. And it's almost as if he's speaking to her. You know, she's now part of this covenant. She's come under the protection of Yahweh, under his wings. Mm. And this foreigner who shouldn't have anything to do with Israel at all has now come into covenant with Yahweh. Mm. And he's speaking to her as a member of the covenant community. Here's a woman who, say, has been brought in uh, from very far off, both spiritually and geographically, into the people of God in the most beautiful sort of way of covenant again. So it's it's uh, being affirmed by a man here. Uh, you know, she's being affirmed in the covenant as opposed to the outsider who's no right to be there. Yeah. And yet it's not some kind of uh, um, Cinderella story in that no. R- Ruth's not passive in this. In fact, you know, she's the one who's kind of motivating a lot of this, isn't she? Well, well, certainly, well, her mother-in-law as well. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't help. You know, it's almost you know, put on your best dress, do your hair, put on the perfume, and uh, and go to them on the threshing floor. And there's even you know possible euphemisms around the mm-hmm. whole idea of the the you know the threshing floor. You know, and the, even the danger that I think her mother-in-law puts her in by sending her there. You know, it's uh, you know th- this is a time of feasting. Men have lots of money in their pocket and wine in their belly. Uh, so to 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 do what she's doing is she's taking a great risk, shall we say? Yeah. And uh, but again, uh, rather than uh, Boaz taking advantage of her. The way so you know the way that the likes of the concubine has been treated in this sort of diabolical fashion, mm. uh, Boaz does the opposite and uh, not just uh, maintains her dignity and her purity in that sense, but uh, makes sure that nobody else can even make the accusation against her. So that yeah, the, again it's. It's this protective thing that, that Boaz is doing. He's showing her this uh, covenant love and covenant faithfulness in what he's doing. So the Hebrew word hesed, you mm. know, sort of runs through the whole text. And that's probably the best definition of that is covenant faithfulness. So mm. she has shown covenant faithfulness to her mother-in-law and Boaz in return shows it to her. And so it's, again, this when, when covenant works well, you know, when, when you know that Yahweh is king, he's your provider and protector, you then can become, in the, you know, in your identity in that, you become the protector and the provider for others and, sh- you know, demonstrate the hesed that he has shown you. Yeah, because at the end of Judges, you have the women being, the virgins being sent out into the fields, oh. you know, and, and they get taken away as part yeah. of this bargaining chip with the with the uh, the Benjaminite tribe. and yeah. uh, But but here in, in Ruth, you have... Um, Ruth going out into the field and Boaz saying, "Don't anybody touch her, protect yeah. her, and allow her." And so you oh, you get this, yeah. this, and, and I, I thought about you know, the Torah is not mentioned explicitly in the book of Ruth, but you no. seem to see the faithfulness God requires in the Torah kind of played out or lived out in well, the narrative. It certainly lived out. I mean, yeah. well, even the whole gleaning, you know, goes back to the law. You know, this was part of the requirement. So Boaz is faithful to that. And uh, and then we, we, we say it obviously later on, we, we know the whole thing of the, you know, the, the sandless one, you know, where he, he goes and uh, talks to the sort of the near relative. And, and again, uh, 
whilst the letter of the law would have actually have required Ruth to go and do that, I, I think he has sort of shown, you know, he's gone the extra mile, shall we say, in this case, because yeah. Ruth would have had one that would, you know, according to Deuteronomy, he would be, or she would be the one who would go before the elders. And can you imagine the whole scene of her facing rejection in front of all these men? That that would be humiliating for her, as well as the other guy himself, because he's going to be, have his face spat upon and his sandal taken off him, etc. But uh, Boaz seems to take... So there's a letter of the law, but Boaz takes a better way. And so both books end um, talking about kings. At the end of Judges, you have this idea there's no king in Israel, yeah. right? And then at the end of Ruth, after this kind of um, expression of covenant faithfulness, you get this salvific hope that we find out that David uh, comes, you know, from Ruth. Yes. So yeah, it's a good point. I mean, and actually, you and you take it through to the uh, the genealogy of Matthew's gospel. Uh, we have it all there, and uh, yeah, but it's well. I suppose I like to think of that there as you know, despite ourselves and despite yeah. man's feelings, the sovereignty of God. He's still working out his plans and purposes despite us, not because of us. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's one of the great lessons of all the the, the sort of the history of Israel up to this point. So, Alice, as we kind of wrap this up here, yep. um, let's just think quickly about, obviously there's a real strong thread here of um, of women prominently appearing in both books and this sense of God um, um, redeeming that part of the narrative. But I think there's also a wider sense as well of that sometimes when we come to the scriptures, we don't notice those things because we we kind of tend to zoom in on certain things or make moral examples out of people that um uh, that maybe we shouldn't instead of reading kind of the broader narrative and see how things connect together what do you think about that i think i think you're right it's um well I, I, there's there's always value of doing the character studies and looking yeah. at that individually but i, I think you're right we just to stand back and get the whole sort of well what what's god doing here uh, in this whole story, what's what's the the text trying to, to tell us at this point, and and uh, and the, the difficult parts? Why is it impacting us in the way it's impacting us? You know, what's the Holy Spirit send us through this uh, text? But you know, but I suppose part of the the overall history, it, it's uh, it's even going back to my, my book at the start. You know, God meant it for good. You know, yeah. <laughs> I just thought of that there. You know, it's this idea that the you know, the the whole of history, God is working. Uh, his purpose is out. The big lessons, you know, when we, we fail to walk in covenant with him the way we're supposed to, this is where it leads us. Look, look at look at the depths that you can actually get to by by doing this. But uh, the the book of Ruth sort of highlights the other side of it. But look at the heights that we can rise when, when we, we act with covenant faithfulness towards Yahweh and to our neighbor. Yeah. And... Um... I love that scripture that says that even when we are unfaithful, that he is still faithful yeah. and consistently calling us back yes. to remember his faithfulness. And that's a great, um, a great thing we can take from these two books. Absolutely. 
Well, Alistair, thank you so much for taking thank the time you. to talk about it. It's really insightful, and we've probably opened a can of questions can of for words. people. Yeah, <laughs> but it would be a great encouragement for people to go yeah. and sit down and just read from Judges to the end of Ruth and yeah. kind of look at how those two those two books connect well, and contrast. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose one of the things I always say to the students, you know, it's a, it's not just how God speaks to you through. How does it, how does this text impact you, and why? Yeah. You know, if if it troubles you, it's troubling you for a good reason, yeah. and we 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 should be wrestling with that yeah that's great thank you Alistair okay, for being thanks, with us Kelly. appreciate you taking the time thank you cheers bye well thank you Alistair and Kenny firstly for your beautiful Gaelic accents and secondly for opening up the links between Judges and Ruth for us so that we can see the storylines intersecting clearly Man, it makes you just want to delve even more into the Bible, doesn't it? In our next episode, we'll be welcoming Professor Andrew Parker, who will be chatting with Kenny about leading the way Jesus did. What does this mean for us? And is it genuinely possible to model Jesus's leadership style in our context? This is a must listen for anyone in any leadership position today. Theodisc is part of WTC, a theological college that seeks to partner with the church through equipping and sending the whole people of God. Our innovative hub model allows you to study on any of our part-time programs without leaving your work or ministry. Come and find out more at wtctheology.org.uk. Thank you for listening to episode 23 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 24 as Kenny chats with Andrew Parker about leading like Jesus. Bye for now.